The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So many years ago, I was invited to sit in on a group to watch a teacher teach what some call secular mindfulness. And when we say secular mindfulness, what it is is really mindfulness that is being taught disconnected from its dharmic context. So I was watching this teacher teach the class, and the group started by reporting their um, daily meditation for the week. And it got to a young woman who reported that that morning she had had a very agitated meditation and she had been unable to settle. And then she paused and then she added, well, I realized that I was agitated because I had done something that was not quite right the day before. So... I was surprised that the teacher listened but didn't say anything. And, you know, from, for me, with the, the Dharma background, immediately uh, was the sense of, oh, this was a very fruitful, wonderful teaching moment that the teacher could have... Uh, really made a point about the essential connection between ethics and our peace of mind. The essential connection of ethics in our peace of mind. So we can meditate all we want, but if we repeatedly engage in behaviors that are not ethical, we will not have peace of mind. So mindfulness, the way it is taught within the Dharma, goes far beyond the way that is taught in the secular realm. Because really in the secular realm, what it is is a technique for relaxation and well-being. And that's quite valuable. That's, That's very good. But within the Dharma context, it asks us to go quite a bit further than that. So being relaxed and having well-being, although very pleasant, it's not an end in and of itself. But it's a means for us to be able to perceive our reality clearly. Once we are able to recognize clearly what's happening in the moment, then the next step is we want to realize that we have a choice of how we respond in that situation. The next step would be that we're able to discern what is the wholesome and what is the unwholesome in this situation. The next step would be to recognize 
the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion that is motivating that unwholesome behavior. And the last one, and of course quite important, is that we opt for the wholesome. So you can see, you know, this was one, two, three, four, five more steps beyond this just relaxing and having well-being through our mindfulness practice. So every time that we opt for the wholesome behavior, we can say that we have won a moment of freedom, and that is the goal. That is our true goal. Here's a quote from Gill. For practitioners, the connection between ethics and the path of liberation is not abstract or theoretical. Rather, it is an intimate, interrelated connection occurring in people's personal, interpersonal, and embodied life. So we see from this quote about ethics that ethics has an internal and an external dimension and a personal and interpersonal dimension. So at the heart of this, of this practice of ethics is our ability to discern the wholesome from the unwholesome and then act according to what is wise and non-harming to oneself and others. Now, to be able to do that, we really need to have our mindfulness well-established Because we need to be able to insert that mindfulness pause that allows us to stop and assess. And to assess with with some degree of clarity, to be able to do that is dependent on us having some degree of calmness. Right? And the calmness, of course, in turn, depends on a stable foundation of ethics. So we've come back, you know, to, to ethics. So if ethics is there, then we have a strong foundation, and from there we can build the various steps to our final goal of these little moments of liberation. So as a way of coming up with my own definition of, of ethics, I started by looking, so what, what does the dictionary say about ethics and morals? So basically, I found that, that ethics and morals are used interchangeable. Because for ethics, for example, it says moral principles that govern a person's behavior, the branch of knowledge that deals with moral principles. So when defining ethics, they're they're borrowing the term morals. Um, So so they're they're used pretty much uh, in, in a synonymous way. 
But I'd like to make a subtle distinction in that morals suggest a generalized norm for a society, for a culture, and that ethics, the way it's understood in the Dharma, a sila, implies a personal investigation of how we live. So this is our personal engagement where we really gauge look at a very specific behavior and say, hmm, is this wholesome or this is not unwholesome? So here's my definition in progress. Ethics implies a personal, active involvement of assessment of reality, discerning between what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, opting for the wholesome, in cultivating an intention of non-harming for oneself and others. So the intention is a very important piece in this ethics. So in my working definition of ethics, I purposely stayed away from dualistic language, such as good and bad, because we know that these terms are like dead ends. However, using terms like wholesome and unwholesome, which is usually the way we translate the term uh, kusala in, in Pali, that one, that's much more interesting because it frees us from these categorical labels and invites us to use terms that require us, us to evaluate in a more nuanced manner specific behaviors rather than taking ethics as an abstract philosophy. We're looking at very specific situations and behavior. So we can see that our personal engagement and discerning is central to Buddhist ethics. The first time that I heard Gill said that following morals in a rigid way is actually or can can actually be um, have can actually have a, a negative effect. I was surprised, but as you think about it, you realize that this following moral principles in a rigid way without asking yourself, what am I doing, is dangerous. First of all, we don't develop our ability to discern, and then we don't mature ethically. So every situation is unique, and we cannot be lazy and just apply one one answer to all situations. So sometimes what is wise is to transgress the moral rule. I'll never forget the the profound impact that it had on me when I first watched the uh, footage that exists of Adolf Eichmann when he was interrogated during the Nuremberg uh, war trial. the war crime trials in Israel. I don't know if you've ever watched it, but if you haven't, 
do so because it's really an eye-opening. This Nazi public official, when asked why he had been, why he had lent himself to be instrumental in the mass murder of Jews, he responded with an expressionless face, I was only following orders. I was doing my job. So this is not what Buddhism means. This is not an independent, proactive investigator. This is the kind that will just follow rigid commands, orders, rules. Our progress in this practice involves a steady refining of our ability to discern. I like to to think of it that is that is a, a steady and gradual refining. This ability to discern between the wholesome and the unwholesome. Or in other words, we're also refining our ethical sensibility. And this ethical sensibility results in the cleansing or purification of our mind, which in turn allows us to perceive clearly. So purification is is a word that comes up a lot when you're reading about ethics or sila. And I don't know about you, but a lot of people have um, a bit of a, 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 a difficult relation to this word purification or pure. There's some discomfort because there's a lot of baggage with this, with this word. We associate it with restrictive, pious norms and with unattainable ideals. But I'm using purification here as cleanliness, as something that is totally attainable for us. And we can say that we all prefer to be clean. We all, we most, most of us prefer to live in a clean house. And so it is with our minds and hearts. And the path, then, we can say, is a gradual purification of our minds and hearts. So when we first come to the practice, we have a pretty agitated mind and a tense body. And although we might not engage in gross uh, transgressions, We are fine, perhaps, evading taxes when we can get away with, or not telling a cashier when they undercharge us, or telling a lie if it benefits us, or drinking a bit too much at a party and then being obnoxious, or just gossiping about a coworker. So our daily practice will teach us as it did to this young woman that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, that all these behaviors really rattle the mind, agitate the mind. 
But the reverse is also true. We will be much more tranquil and become increasingly aware of joy and well-being when it arises out of this wholesome behavior, when our behavior has been wholesome, then these qualities, these beautiful qualities, arise on their own. Now, this is what I find most promising. The direct experience of joy and well-being as a result of wholesome behavior is the, way, is the best way to deepen our understanding of ethics. Because joy and well-being will function as an inspiration to continue cultivating ethics or joy, ethics in our lives. So you might have noticed that I didn't tell you at the beginning of the talk what the talk was about, and I did that very much on purpose. Because if I had started, I'm going to give you a talk on ethics, people would have gone, oh, okay. So somehow ethics, um, a lot of us think it's not a very interesting topic. I already know, you know, I'm already a pretty ethical person. But that's only kind of our lazy, lazy self. And... You know, one of the the the, the goals, or, or what I would w- hope for at the end of this talk, is is to see that that cultivating ethics is actually really quite interesting. It invites you to be awake in your life every day, and really assess carefully every situation. And then, of course, when you manage to connect with this joy and well-being. Then you have the wind behind your sails. Then you know, ah, this is, this, is, this is a good thing. So Buddhist teachings offer us a basic code of ethics in the form of the five precepts that I'm sure most of you have already heard. Just abstaining from killing sentient beings, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from lying, abstaining from engaging in sexual and harmful sexual behavior. So the part that is essential is in harmful sexual behavior. Abstaining from intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedless behavior. So those are the, the the five precepts. Now for... Some of us who have a Judeo-Christian background, it's worth taking note that the precepts are not worded as commandments. Thou shall not, dot, dot, dot. But instead as a guide telling you, abstain yourself from taking life of sentient beings, Now, this kind of wording emphasizes more the self-responsibility as opposed to an authoritative command of don't do this. We say that when we practice the precepts, we are giving ourselves the gift of safety. We are safe, and we make ourselves safe for other people. 
So Bhikkhu Bodhi describes the precepts as, and I quote, a set of stepping stones to help us gradually cross the rough currents of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the, the precepts as a safe foothold that protect us. So we can aim at internalizing these precepts to the point that they become inner ethical. They become an inner ethical disposition. There's another uh, teaching on sila or ethics that the Buddha offers us. It's a very, very short one. Just four lines. comes from the Dhammapada. And it says, doing no evil, engaging in what is wholesome, and purifying the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddha. No, this is very pithy. Very much to the point. So with the first line, doing no evil, it's pointing to restraining ourselves. You know, first, before we, we, we do the right thing, we have to stop doing the wrong thing. In the second line, engaging what is wholesome refers to cultivating the virtues and beneficial states of mind. And purifying the mind concerns with freeing oneself from all the afflictive and non-virtuous aspects of mind. So we can see also that the order that these lines appear have their wisdom. First, we have to abstain, as I said before, from the unwholesome so that then we can cultivate the wholesome. If we use the analogy of of a garden, it would be first we have to pull the weeds, work the soil, then it's time to plant the seeds for beautiful flowers. So be it the precepts or this pithy teaching from the Dhammapada, we can see that this um, approach of teaching ethics has what Gill calls a humanistic approach. And I like very much this aspect of a humanistic approach, meaning that whatever it is we can know from our human experience, so this the ethical teachings is something that we can observe from our behavior, our experience. And I quote Gill, rather than originating from supernatural or theistic sources, the Buddha's teachings are based on what early Buddhism claims humans can experience, know, and reason for themselves. This humanistic orientation is represented by the Buddhist belief that human life provides the best opportunity for spiritual liberation. It's also interesting that in the discourses we have the um, a person who does not follow the ethical guides is called a fool. 
Such fools live with agitation and are obsessed by lust, hatred, and delusion to the point that they harm themselves and others. And so this is exactly why they're called fools. From the Dhammapada, it says, Fools, conscious of their foolishness, are to that extent wise. But fools who consider themselves wise are the ones to be called fools. Here we have this juxtaposition of the fool and the wise. So both personification, the the personifications of the fool and the wise used by the Buddha focus on the soundness of how the individual's mind works. If we juxtapose that to, for example, a sinner, we can see that a fool gives you a little bit more wiggle room to restart again. But a sinner is pretty dooming. That one, I think it's uh, much, it, it suggests a condemnation, that it's much more difficult to recover on one's own. So there's a lovely image in the in the discourses about wisdom and virtue. And it says that it is expressed how the left hand washes the right and the right washes the left, right? When you wash your hands, one washes the other. And so it is with so an ethical life purifies wisdom, and wisdom purifies one's ethical life. They go hand in hand. So now I want to take one, <clears throat> one sutta, one discourse that is called the Kunda discourse. And this discourse is a, just a conversation the Buddha is having with this man who was... Uh, All we know is that he is the smith's son. And Kunda asks the Buddha, which rites does he prefer? Which rites of purification does the Buddha prefer? But before the Buddha answers, Kunda himself adds what he prefers. He says, well, I prefer the rites of the Brahmins. And the rites of the Brahmins include... Things like carrying water pots, tending to the sacred fire, and immersing oneself in water. So the Buddha listens, and then he says, well, the noble ones have very different ways of going about purifying themselves. And then the Buddha lists Ten behaviors, not rights, behaviors as as means to purify oneself. And these behaviors are very specific. We have three behaviors dealing with the body, three of which we've already heard, the abstaining from destroying life, 
take in what is not giving and sexual misconduct. So those are the three of body. And then there are four of speech. And there is abstaining from lying. I think a lot about that in our present situation. Speaking divisively, abstaining oneself from speaking divisively. Speaking harshly. And idle chatter. And then we are presented with three of mind. Covetousness, you know, that you're longing for the wealth of somebody else. Ill will and intentions of hate. And then the last one, holding wrong view. Basically, in wrong view, it gives us several points about not having our values in the right place. It all to do with with the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. So I find interesting that he, that from these ten, the the one that has the most is the the speaking. You know that the four. And I think we can we can we can feel ourselves when we are using speech that in some way is not ethical. I really um, appreciate speaking, talking with people who are practitioners because I've noticed that people don't speak badly about anybody else. They don't gossip. It's not so common in, in general to find people that abstain from gossiping. Notice how often you speak about others. And when you do, it's like, what are you saying? I often remember uh, when I was back in grad school, there was a student that rented a room from a, a woman who was famous for being a bit of a difficult landlady. And Every student in the department complained about this landlady. But this particular person never, although he rented a room there too, he never spoke badly of her. And as I got to know him more, I realized, oh, he never really speaks badly about anybody else. And then the next thing I noticed is, oh, I feel safe with him. Which was interesting to me. So, you know, when, when we notice that somebody doesn't speak badly, then, then you know, oh, well, that person is also not going to speak badly about me. So to finish, I wanted to, to read to you um, a section from... Um, an essay about the perfection of sila or ethics. And this is by Acharya Dhammapala. And I, I chose this one because I, it, 
it really shows you the contrast of, of what Buddhist ethics are in comparison to what Kunda is talking about in this discourse about these rites this, that are a little bit odd, you know, of carrying pots of water or, or wearing these garlands or lighting incense or whatever, you know, rites that we think are going to do the trick of, of purifying us. But um, in this essay, we hear really what it is that, that is valued in, in the Dharma. The perfection of virtue, or sila, should be thought about as follows. Even the waters of the Ganges cannot wash away the stain of hatred. Yet the water of virtue is able to do so. Even yellow sandalwood cannot cool the fever of lust, yet virtue is able to remove it. Virtue is the unique adornment of good people surpassing the adornment cherished by average folks such as necklaces, diadems, and earrings. Virtue should be reflected upon as the basis for rapture and joy, as granting immunity from fear of self-reproach, the reproach of others, punishment, and a hellish rebirth, as praised by the wise, as the root cause for freedom from remorse, as the basis for security. Virtue surpasses material wealth because thieves cannot confiscate it, because it enables one to achieve supreme sovereignty over one's own mind. Virtue surpasses the sovereignty of warriors, kings, and priests. Virtue surpasses the achievement of beauty, for it makes one beautiful even to one's enemies. It cannot be vanquished by the adversities of aging and sickness. Since it is the foundation for states of happiness, virtue surpasses such dwellings as palaces and mansions. In accomplishing the difficult task of self-protection, virtue is superior to troops of elephants chariots, and infantry, as well as such devices as mantras, spells, and blessings, for it depends on oneself, not on others. So this is important. It depends on oneself, not on others. Esteeming virtue as the foundation of all achievements, as the soil for the origination of all the Buddha qualities, the beginning and chief of all the qualities issuing in Buddhahood, one should guard diligently and thoroughly perfect virtue as a hen guards its eggs. And I just take a moment to be in silence.
So letting the words settle that we shared on ethics or sila. And taking a moment to consider if there is something that might be fruitful to share with others, or if there is a question. Perhaps the way you understand sila or the way you work with sila or perhaps a difficulty you have with sila. Oh, <clears throat> there are any comments, questions? Good. Yeah, oh, good. Thank you, Mark. So here's a not so black and white, minor but interesting incident today. I was at Whole Foods and they ask you, okay, do you want to donate or, you know, mm-hmm. it's a very small amount, but yeah, okay, donate. Yeah. And then they ask, I guess maybe because it's this time of year, oh, do you want to donate a dollar, five dollars for feed a hungry family? And so that was on top of it. On top of it, yeah. Okay. It was just, and I thought about. It and I said, wait a minute. And you know, this I, this is not something I have a clear answer on because I'm, you know, I have my ideas and agendas. But I realized, you know, this is a food store that's owned by possibly the richest guy in the world, right? right. I mean, Amazon, right, right, right. Yeah, and they're not even talking about matching it, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, I said, well, no, not this time, you know. And I didn't feel great about it, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, there's other ways to do this, you know. And, of course, then I have to figure out, okay, this was a convenient way to do this. So, I don't know. I, I came away with not feeling perfectly fine with it, but I don't feel perfectly bad about it either, given, you know. So, it's one of these conundrums. It's, it's yeah. not always straightforward. It's something right, that, it's right, kind exactly. Of a cohen in a because way. it doesn't seem like it, 
if you had given, would it, do you know how yeah, it I don't know for a fact felt? where it would wind up, to tell you the truth. I mean, chances are, yeah, they would, I don't know. <laughs> but it's not as clear cut. Yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what I you know, was saying, it, it, that I, I find the topic, it's, it's very interesting, and it, we never finish, I mean, the, the, because we are always presented with new situations. And um, the, the, the part that I, that I find wonderful to, to add is, you know, from that, that sutta where the Buddha is giving advice to his son Rahula in he tells him, well, pay attention of how you feel before you're doing X, during doing X, and after. And that's a very good um, help. It's a, it's, a, it's a helpful technique, you know, and it's, it, it's basically, you, that's the way you, you reported it. It didn't feel right before. It didn't quite feel right during. And also afterwards, so that means you did the right thing because that's, that's what the Buddha says when, as far as generosity. If you are about to give something, the Buddha says it should feel joyous before, during, and after. And if it doesn't, don't. And that's the beauty, the way that, that we function with, these, with this offering of teachings and, and then people offering dana. Nobody's putting pressure. It's just totally, how does it feel? Does it feel right? Yeah, or not? So it's almost like, a, a, to me, having come from a, a Christian background, to me it felt like, oh, I'm allowed to be a grown-up and really um, take each situation and investigate it and come up with the best possible answer that I'm able at the moment instead of just, you know, from above, an authoritative voice telling me what to do. So, thank you, Mark. Anybody else? Good. Well, I wish you that the next time you find yourself in one of those situations where you're, mm-mm, you don't quite know what to do, that very quickly, just the, the, the ethical side of you comes up and, and gives you this, this, sense of, this sense of ease. You know, not, not that long ago I got, I, I, I'm sure some of you have gotten this call in your cell phone where it, it tells you that you've committed some kind of horrible thing and, and you're, being, you're being taken to court or something like that. And I, at first I heard it and I thought, huh? The first time it happened, which was already a while ago when it was still new. Now it's not new anymore. But when it first happened, there was a moment of, of disconcertion, of this, this being, what's the word I want? Dis- disconcerting. Disconcerting. Mm. And then, and then I, I thought, oh, even, even if this is true, I'm totally at peace because my conscience is clear. I haven't done anything wrong. But what if I had something that was not quite right? Whoa. Then you kind of really feel an agony. So that tranquility, that peace of mind is worth it a lot. So that's what I, I wish you for. So be well. Thank you. <laughs>